All right. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, it is one o'clock in uh, Raleigh, where I am right now. And uh, thanks for joining us. I've got a bunch of people in, which is terrific. So we're going to go through some questions that that you have. We're going to feel free to use the Q&A portion that you'll see in Zoom, and we will answer what is coming in as we go. Um, and uh, just let me know. I've scheduled about 45 minutes for this call, so hopefully we'll we'll hit that. We may run slightly over, um, but we'll go from there. Uh, Sue, um, first question that we have, is there any support uh, such as legal review of the acquired uh, property, legal entity maintenance after finished drafting of the document? That's a good question. Um, the answer is no. So what we do at Muscati Law Group is we're primarily concerned with your security itself. So we're concerned with how you deal with investors, how you present yourself, making sure you're protected by the SEC. Um, my license covers national things such as securities licenses, like securities, um, but it doesn't necessarily uh, go to different states. So I'm licensed in California. I'm licensed in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you are outside of there, I can't offer you specific legal advice as it relates to whatever state it is. And if there was a legal issue about that acquired property, um, for example, title, I'm not going to be able to give you the legal advice to it. Many times for my clients, I can give them kind of my opinion as a as a you know, real estate professional or as a syndicator, uh, but it's not legal advice. And I, I will probably still refer you to an attorney uh, if you have a specific legal uh, issue. Hope that answers that question there. Um, Another question, what LLCs do I need to start my syndication? Uh, that's probably one of the top three most common questions I get, so happy to answer that for you. Uh, let's go to, I have a whiteboard here that makes that a little bit easier to explain. Um, so there's two different LLCs typically that we form. Uh, it's a service that we also offer uh, when you sign up for a package. We, we generally do the formations. Um, it's fine if you already have them set up, but we'll also do them for you if you don't. Um, so there's two entities here. This is building. So let's say it's a property. Uh, so generally there are, is two entities we form. Oops, I made that totally ugly. There you go. Those are little like seals on a thing. So this is what I call the sponsor entity. And this is what I call the uh, uh um, let's lost my sheet. This is what I call the investment entity. And so the title is owned by that investment entity. It is this investment entity is managed by the, uh, by the sponsor entity. And then your investors 
they all invest into that investment entity. So there's typically two, um, two different entities. Now, in cases where there is a uh, several different properties, we'll normally set up um, SPVs or special purpose entities uh, for each of those, which is then managed by the uh, investment entity. So I hope that answers that question. Um, another question is, uh, how do I handle timing differences for different investors in a given fund when calculating returns? Great question. Uh, also, same issue with timing different projects, uh, investments in the same fund. Okay, George, good question. So this is talking about two different things. So there's two different kinds of funds in the world or two different kinds of syndications. There's open-ended funds and there's closed-ended funds. So about maybe 60, 70% of our clients do closed-ended funds. And that's, you've got a single uh, asset or a single group of assets. You have investors come over a limited time period. So you're raising money for three months, six months, whatever it is. Uh, they all go in together and they all come out together. That's called a closed-ended fund. The difference is an open-ended fund. And George, you probably know this, but I'm giving background just for the other people as well. Um, so in a closed-ended fund, that what that does is it is open in time. So you may have investors coming in in month one. You may have them coming in in month nine. You may even have them coming in like the year later. So what George is asking about is this challenge here where you've got erase everything where if we look at it on a timeline and this let's say q1 q2 q3 q4 etc where you have an investor coming in here and you've uh, for say 100k and you've got an investor coming in here for 100K. So the challenge comes up because this 100K here is more valuable to you at this point than it is at this point, right? It's time value of money. They're coming in at different points. And if you're saying at the end, we're going to be paying you a return of 40% or 30% or whatever it is, this guy here, this this guy who came in before the end before Q1 happened, uh, he's getting disadvantaged. So he is being, uh, he's not getting the full benefit because he would much rather wait till Q4 in order to put his money in. So there's uh, really one main way to deal with it. And then there's a couple kind of variations to deal with it. The main way is by calculating the net asset value at these different points in time. So you count the net asset value here, you calculate the net asset value here, uh, and you go. And what that essentially does is you'd say, okay, the whole value of the entire portfolio, let's say is 5 million here. And then in Q2, now maybe it's 5, 5.2 million. And now maybe in Q3, maybe something, uh, slightly happened where it's now 5.1, but then it jumps up to 5.5 million. 
And then you divide out this amount by the total amount of membership units that there are. And so basically what you're coming up is the cost per membership unit. So you're selling those membership units to this investor uh, for 100K, uh, for 100K. And then each quarter, you're doing a reassessment of what that net asset value is. Now, it, in the example of um, uh, what, uh, what you don't want to have happen is basically to be saying um, uh, that this person is getting diluted at the same time. And that's how why we do it this way, because we also don't want to be just adding shares or membership units here and here in order to make up the difference because that just dilutes that uh, that person. So that's kind of the main way we, we deal with it. The second way to deal with it is by doing an accounting. So what we can do where we get basically can get rid of the idea of net asset value and come up with um, accounts for each one of your investors and build a ledger for each one of them. So let's say I have investor one who comes in here. And let's say this is investor 17, just for uh, sake of argument. I'm doing deals, and this is really for a portfolio, not for a single, uh, single uh, asset. Um, so I know that here I've got these properties here, and I allocate as evenly as I can at the time of the person investing or at the time of acquisition. I'm allocating percentage of ownership of each one of those um, uh, each one of those assets, almost like its own little mini fund. It's a little account uh, that you're keeping track of. And then as those get disposed of, it gets they roll off. Uh, this is probably the harder way to keep track of it in a lot of senses, especially if there's a lot of transactions coming in or if there's, uh, but it's probably the only way to do it if you've got large gaps of time of when between acquisitions and dispositions and when your investors are trickling in. So kind of a complicated question. That's how it's dealt with most almost always is one of those two ways. Um, but, you know, like I said, we can go through and come up with some other ideas uh, about whatever meets your particular need as well. Um, sure, Tom, we can talk about, uh, we can talk about fees, uh, my fees and finance. Uh, we charge flat fees. Uh, we're very competitive about uh, what we charge. So we charge for a closed-ended fund. Uh, we charge $15,000 as a flat fee. Um, and for a open-ended fund, we charge $25,000 as a flat fee. Now, that's only for the first deal. Um, once you become one of my clients, uh, we give a, a guarantee that for the next three years, it's going to be discounted by 50%. Uh, so that if you're doing closed-ended funds, which most people are, uh, those get discounted to $7,500. Um, that's just the fees. So everybody's paying those fees. 
the I do not finance or do monthly payment plans. It's it's a one-time upfront charge because our time to produce these is really you know is really quick. I devote a lot of time to it, um, and then we get we get you the paperwork out. So you're generally getting uh, getting the uh, the paperwork in two weeks. So financing it just uh, generally doesn't work. Uh, is there software that I use to keep track of individual accounts or ledgers? Yes. Uh, I personally use Appfolio. Uh, Appfolio is a good uh, is a good solution. I recommend it. I get a I have a discount code with them when they pay that affiliate fee. I pass that directly on to my uh, whoever whoever got it, so I don't keep any of that affiliate money myself. Um, and it winds up being about 10% of the cost. I think the cost, and I, I know, I do not keep track of what their costs are. Um, I think it winds up being about $600 a month though, because it, it is a very kind of industrial grade solution. There are other projects out there. I know that some people are using a product called Groundbreaker. I haven't used them myself, and um, but, uh, you could check them out, and so maybe they're they're very good. I have no idea. Right. Um, all right. Can I get my friends to invest in my Reg D if I am advertising? Uh, let's start kind of at the from a bigger picture. It might make a little more sense. Just do do do. Oops. Want to delete? There we go. And go back to the whiteboard. All right. So, um, can I read the question? Okay. So, two types of syndic uh, of syndication generally under five hundred six under Reg D five hundred six B and five hundred six C. There is also five hundred four, but it is. It is hardly ever used now. It's overly complicated, and so nearly no one is using it. So 506B is, let's see. And we'll go through, we'll answer the question in a minute, but I just wanna outline what those, those differences are uh, there. So 506B is yes, you can have non-accredited investors, up to 35 per 90 days. 506C, you can have, um, you can advertise. You can make a general solicitation. And so uh, with 506B though, no advertising. And with 506C, no non-accredited investors. So to answer your question, what we're, the problem is, is if you're doing a 506B, uh, you're not allowed to advertise it really at all. And you said that you needed to advertise. So the, the short answer is probably not as long as those friends and family are non-accredited investors. If they, uh, so how do you do a 506B and um, and basically be able to get people into your fund and find investors. 
There's a few ways. What the SEC's main concern is between 506B and 506C and why they have this rule set up is they don't want people just going out and making general solicitations to the entire world of, hey, come into this fund and basically taking is of people taking advantage of it. So people coming up with some very large me uh, mechanisms to, you know, make, you're going to make a billion dollars if you invest $5 into this fund and we're going to make all this money and basically the syndicator walking away with it. None of you are obviously going to be doing that, uh, but that's what the SEC's concern is. And so they use this toggle point between accredited investors versus advertising as their mechanism to regulate that. So non-accredited investors are not necessarily less sophisticated, but they have less means to be able to adapt uh, a very bad thing happening where somebody walks away with all the invested money. So the turning point really, and it's just reading, it, this is my interpretation, reading between the lines of what the code says, is that it comes down to trust. They want the investor to be able to have some relationship, some sort of like trust that's based in something real uh, with the syndicator. And so what, what needs to happen is dialogue and communication that is outside of what the investment is needs to take place first. So what used to happen in the very early days is syndicators would put together a seminar, they'd get everybody packed into a room, they'd talk about the investment, and they'd get a list of things, and they'd start talking about what their investment was immediately and saying, okay, come invest, come invest, come invest in this, it's great, it's great, it's great. And there was a lot of the the there was concern that there was a lot of pressure that was being put on to investors uh, by syndicators in order to invest. Um, and so what they have done by doing this is they've actually specifically said in the code, you can't do that. What you can do and what the code does, does not prohibit is putting together the same seminar. You put together a seminar of how to invest in real estate. You never talk about your investment at all. And then you basically invite people to say, hey, if you'd like to talk some more about real estate and talk with me one on one, love to do it. Let's set up a, a coffee or, or whatever and do that. Uh, so that's really kind of the main mechanism that people are doing uh, in order to build their investor base is by still setting up seminars or webinars or things like that inviting people into those communications and those dialogues, and then going from there uh, to build that trust and then doing a 506B. Um, I hope that answers that question. Uh, next question, uh, what services do I provide in setting up closed-end fund? Good question. So we are basically your back office, your, your support team to get that fund set up. So what we do is we put together the PPM, the Operating Agreement Subscription Agreement, Investor Questionnaires, um, and then put package those all together so it, uh, it meets what investors would be expecting to see from them. Uh, we can do reviews of your marketing material. We don't do the marketing material ourselves, but we do do reviews. And then uh, you can put it out there into the marketplace. Once you've 
put that all together. We look at what the offering is, and then we put together the Form D, which is what gets filed with the SEC. Uh, and then we get put together uh, with um, the Blue Sky filings. Now, a lot of my competitors do exactly that same thing in terms of the actual, like, we put this documents together. What I think sets us apart in my firm is I'm an active syndicator myself. I'm putting together my own deals. And so what, uh, what we try and do to the, uh, the difference that we make is I take that expertise and I'm available to you in order to make sure that uh, ultimately you're successful. I mean, the reason that we cut our rate once you're a, a client of ours is because our whole goal here is to have you be successful so you keep hiring me over and over and over. That's my goal. So generally, once you're one of my clients, I'm available to you. We set up meetings. Uh, I see some of my clients are on this call, and so they can probably attest to it as well, uh, that I really do try to make myself as available as possible. Uh, probably the easiest way is to set up a meeting with me. I'm, I try and make it so that uh, I can meet with people as quickly as possible, um, and then we can, we can discuss whatever it is. If it's about your syndication specifically, we can talk about that. Or if it's a question about, you know, an issue that you're having, I'm happy to have those conversations as well. Um, so that's, that's what we provide uh, in order to set up a closed-ended fund. Um, another question, is that okay to have both a 506B and a 506C for the LLC? Great question. I do get that a lot too. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, so you choose one and then the and then sometimes you can go to the other. So generally you could if you need to do raise do a raise from friends and family and to advertise, what you can do is you can put together a 506B offering, uh, offer that to friends and family, and then once that's closed, then you can put together a 506C and then advertise that specifically. They need to be two separate different offerings though. Um, so we have we have a fair number of people that do that. Probably not nowhere near a majority, but some people definitely do that. And uh, and it works it works fine. What you cannot do is do a 506C offering where you're advertising it to the world and then do a 506B offering uh, just to pull in those people. Because at that point, they've pretty much seen the offer that's there uh, and that, that may be out there in the marketplace that you've advertised. So what we don't want to ever have happen would be a complaint gets filed. The SEC is called in to investigate. The investor says, well, I had no idea who these people were. I saw an ad on TV. I gave them money, and I am definitely not an accredited investor. That's what we're trying to prevent uh, by making sure that it doesn't go C, then B. But if it goes B, then C, you know, that's fine. You've brought in all the friends and family that you know, and then close that off, and then do the uh, do a 506C offer. Right. Um, so how do I let friends and family know if I'm doing a 506B and can't advertise? Uh, great question. The, the, you can't advertise in terms of a general solicitation under 506B, but you can let, certainly let friends and family know. I think you probably could even post on Facebook or on whatever your social media is, um, 
hey, here's what I'm working on. Uh, and you could bring people in that way. But you'd, if you decide to do that, you just want to be very diligent that the only people that you're letting into that investment are people you actually know. So I wouldn't go like trying to test the gray area when you're putting together seminars and getting to know them for a week and then talking to them about the investment and do that mechanism. Um, but otherwise, you could certainly say, put it out there to the world. Hey, I'm doing this. You know, if you're one of my buddies, give me a call. Uh, and that should be okay because it's not then a general solicitation where anybody can come in. Uh, who is an accredited investor? Uh, an accredited investor is defined in uh, Rule 501. Uh, what it basically says is there's two tests. There's an income test or there is a uh, a net uh, uh, net wealth test. You do not need to pass both of them in order to be uh, considered an accredited investor. You only need to be uh, pass one of them. For the net income test, it needs to be if it's a person applying on their own, so without their spouse, that they need to have two hundred thousand dollars a year in income for the past two years, and expectation of get that for the third year. And for the net wealth test, it needs to be a net wealth of, oh, I'm sorry, and for the income test, if it's with a spouse, it's $300,000 um, or uh, uh, plus um, $300,000 uh, a year for the last two years uh, with the expectation of the current year being $300,000 a year. Uh, the wealth test is for a net wealth of $1 million, and that's not counting any positive equity for primary residents. So if a house is underwater, that does bring down that, that personal net wealth. But if your house is worth worth a million and uh, you owe you know $5 on it, uh, you don't get to count that additional uh, income as that primary that that big spread, that $995,000, you don't need to get to count that as your, as your wealth. It needs to be separate from that primary. Okay. Um, uh, can we do a 1031 exchange? Uh, common question. The answer is, the simple answer is no. Uh, the, uh, well, let me back up. The simple, uh, if you mean to, can we do a, can people 1031 exchange into a property, uh, into your property and give you the, the money from there? The answer is probably no. Uh, that money itself would be counted as boot and they're going to be paying their taxes on it uh, outside of that 1031 exchange. If they want to pay taxes on it, then absolutely they can, um, but it is counted as boot and it can't come in. The only exception to that, uh, and I'm hesitant to say it, is in the case of a Delaware statutory trust, uh, which is a very complicated mechanism. Um, and so technically, they you can set up a fund in order to raise money with 1031 money, um, but it can only be in the in the a specific shell of a Delaware statutory trust, which are very, very complicated, expensive, and uh, very challenging to put together. Can you 1031 out? Uh, probably. Now here it gets kind of state specific because 
a lot of times what happens is the under the IRS rules, it's 98% not a problem. Under local state rules, it depends. So in California, for example, if you were to try and do a 1031 exchange out of a property that's being syndicated and one of your investors doesn't want to go along, but everybody else does, the Franchise Tax Board in California will come after you and disallow it. And they don't have any problems filing a lawsuit against you no matter what, despite whatever the IRS rulings are, they want their money immediately. So uh, they will disallow it. I've heard New York is also equally challenging. I'm not keeping track of which states like it and which don't. Now, if everybody wants to 1031 exchange, that's not going to be a problem. So you certainly can 1031 out as long as every investor doesn't have a problem with it, uh, or if your fund is just set up uh, automatically to do that, then it will be okay. But everybody has to come along. You can't split out, split out fractional shares in some states. Uh, so I'd be very careful about that. Um, we have some clients who are doing it very successfully, uh, but they're also not letting in people from New York or California in order to be able to do it without a problem. Um, which is easier, an open-ended fund or a closed-ended fund? Um, so, and, uh, well, it depends what you mean by easier. So, Easier in terms of raising capital, I think most of the time it is much easier to raise money for a closed-ended fund. In my experience, most investors like to have concrete start dates, an expectation of um, this money is going to be held and doing whatever it's doing for five years, seven years, three years, whatever that time period is, and they kind of know what that is going in. Um, so raising money my experience is closed-ended is much easier. Open-ended is more vague, and the more vague it is, the more challenging it is. Um, the What's easier about open-ended funds is open-ended funds are easier in terms of strategic decisions. Uh, if you've got a pool of money and you're able to place it, uh, an open-ended fund, you're able to do that. You just need to make sure you're complying with whatever rules are in your operating agreement um, that are set up. So the the specific plan of an open-ended fund can be easier, uh, but a closed-ended fund is much easier to get investors for and much easier to uh, maintain because we're not dealing with like what we answered before about funds where we're after having to keep track of either separate ledgers or keep track of uh, of net asset value uh, along the way. That gets gets overly complicated. Um, how? Let's see. Uh, up above. Uh, does uh, does documentation provide uh, accepting investments from self directed IRAs? Um, yeah, basically, uh, almost every syndicator does allow accepting funds from self-directed IRAs. To back up, just so everybody knows, a self-directed IRA is basically an it's an IRA where the administrator of that IRA allows the uh, allows the person with that account, the account holder, 
to basically dictate where their funds are going to go, and that can be into a syndication. So there's quite a few uh, companies that are self-directed IRA companies. Probably the biggest is Entrust, E-N-T-R-U-S-T, but they're by far not the only ones. I've dealt with probably about six different ones. Um, and they're generally pretty easy. So uh, it, I haven't had a situation where I've had a an administrator of a self-directed IRA ask for any changes to a uh, to a PPM or to an operating agreement. Their main concern, in order because they want to stay compliant uh, for the benefit of the IRA holder, is that the IRA holder doesn't have access to touch the money themselves. So it's it's nearly impossible to set up a self-directed IRA where the syndicator themselves gets to go into the investment. But it's almost always the case that uh, that you can generally have investors who have self-directed IRAs, and you should. And that's a great talking point to, uh, to finding investors, to having those conversations, because now they can put their uh, IRA money as uh, to use in your syndications as well. It's a good thing to talk about. And uh, the only administrative thing that the burden that it adds to you is two things is first you have to submit it to the administrator for their review before you can get the money uh, and the second thing is every year the administrator is going to ask well really they're going to ask the uh, ira holder uh, who then will ask you is they want to get a, a a general assessment of what the current value of that IRA is, or what that asset is in their IRA, uh, for reporting purposes, they need it, uh, so they will ask you for it. Uh, but it's really, it's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, I basically have a template for it. Uh, if, if ever you're working on one and you're a client of mine, you just tell me that, you know, how does this look? Uh, and I'll send you over what my template is and you can fill it out and it's, it's pretty simple. Um, let's see, let me get a quick drink. All right, um, another question. We have some situations where after signing the PPM, we're wanting to provide a discount on our fee and commissions. What tax formality or documentation do we need to have? Okay, yeah, you, you absolutely can do that. Um, this is where most of the time we'll talk about side letters. So. In, we'll talk, we talk about side letters in our PPM, and I think we talk about them a little bit in the operating agreement, just that these things exist. What a side letter basically is, is it's an agreement outside of what your normal investors get. So it's, it, let's do a diagram. Easier. Oops, thing. So you've got your agreement with your investors, right? So investor, investor, and then you've got this guy here who's also an investor. And you want to give him uh, a little bit better deal. Say uh, you've got it on that, that this investment is paying, uh, and I'm making stuff up here paying an 8% preferred return, 
and then a 70-30 split. So 70% to the investor and a 30% to the manager. This guy is coming in with a lot of money, this guy here. And you really want him as an investor and you want to incent him in order to finish off your investment and, and bring him in. So what you want to offer him is an 8% pref and an 80-20 split. So that is no problem at all. What you'd basically do is have him sign the, the fee agreement and then do this separate side letter just for him that says, okay, and for you, we're going to do an 80-20. Uh, so that's one way to do it. What the caution is that, that we're looking at whenever we're doing side letters is I don't want there to be a situation where, uh, where instead of this 8% PREF, you are suddenly doing a 12% PREF. And you've told your investors that, we're, that this is an 8% PREF. Now, why is that the case? Because all these are getting the 8%, the 8%, and then after that are getting that 70-30 split. So after all that money's paid out, then they're getting a 70-30 split. Well, that 8% is driving down the amount of available cash for distribution, right? Because they're getting that right off the top. So now if I'm giving somebody this 12% right off the top, that's driving it down more than the investors are, are, are expecting. And so you're diluting them without telling them. And so that's, that's a big no-no. Um, so I don't want, I'm, whenever we're talking about, uh, about those, that's what I'm on the lookout for is dilutions that are unintended. Uh, in terms of fees, what you can do is, um, because I think that was your question, uh, is can you, uh, can you give them some fees? The answer is, uh, yeah, you can give them some fees. And sometimes we'll do those, especially in the case of like a kicker for a guarantor on a loan. Like if somebody is investing a large amount on there, you'll give them uh, maybe 1% of the, of the amount financed just for the act of signing on the loan. Um, that's okay to do uh, in terms of, of what there is. Now, in terms of tax formality, uh, well, so the, the, the documentation is simple. It's a side letter. It's the agreement between the fund and the investor. That's the documentation you need. For a, uh, as it relates to taxes, what will happen is you'll need to just basically explain what it is, what the situation is to your tax preparer, your CPA, uh, when they're preparing the K-1s to make sure that they get notified. Now, if they're getting paid a portion of fees, that's basically fees coming from the manager is how you would want to structure it, not from the fund itself. So it's the manager paying the fees 
So a fee gets paid to the invest uh, to the manager, and the manager then kicks that back to the fee. Uh, so let's just just so it, make sure it's real clear because could be a problem otherwise. Um, so uh, here's your investor. So it's paying regular distributions. And this is the investment. Hopefully you all can see my handwriting. I think it makes it helpful to see it this way though. Um, uh, so you have the sponsor LLC getting paid fees and then the sponsor LLC paying some subset of fees. So it's going to reduce the amount of taxes that the sponsor LLC pays. Uh, and then the uh, what this investor is going to basically get a K-1. Um, they'll get a K-1 on that distribution and they'll get a 1099 on the subset of fees. Um, so from a tax perspective, that's the that's what would happen. Uh, in a real estate fund, could an investor invest funds into a property's equity through a note between the fund, LLC, and the sponsor? Um, Sorry, let me switch track. Could an investor invest funds into this property's equity through a note? Um, yes, you could. Um, yeah, you could do that. Uh, you just would want to, uh, again, make sure that the investors are still getting what what they're expecting who are not a party to that uh, specific investor. And then document that that investment through the note. So you would document the note. Um, so yes is the, the short answer. Uh, there is no different in the document preparation if the syndication invests in residential or commercial property. Um, not a substantial difference in, uh, I mean, in your private placement memorandum, there's there's documentation about different risk levels. There's documentation about what your overall strategy is. So those things are going to be different uh, in what those docu what all of those syndication documents look like. But the state of those documents, or you know, there's there's not anything that's. Um, substantially different like oh well if it's residential property you need to put all of this stuff except for risks or whatever is going on with that particular investment um is there any minimum or maximum amount of money that can be raised no so under regulation d you could raise one dollar you could raise 20 trillion dollars um, you'll, you know, if you can, if you can raise twenty trillion dollars, I've got a job for you. Uh, but uh, if you, um, uh, but there is, there are no maximums under Regulation D, um, and no minimums either. It, it's probably not economically viable to um, to do a minimum raise to do a a raise. Typically, I might. When I was coaching people, when people would ask what the minimum would be, 
uh, that I would look at, I probably would say a minimum of a million dollars of equity raised. Uh, it's the amount of money that you're making at less than a million dollars is probably lower than would make it make sense for the amount of work that you do as a syndicator. All right, uh, so we got uh, just one question left. How does Form D work? Um, Form D is basically the notification to the SEC. So Regulation D uh, has uh, is basically an exception to the general security rule that all securities must be registered. That's the key word is registered with the SEC. As an exception to it, it doesn't need to be registered, but it does need to be, uh, some documentation needs to be filed, and that's through the Form D. Uh, what the rule is, is generally the, uh, the SEC, once, the, once that Form D filed within 15 days of the first sale of, uh, of the security, but it further defines that the sale, the first day of the sale of the security is the date, basically at which point the investor isn't going to get their money back. So if you get it up, you know, you've raised all this money, uh, you get it to the finish line, it's just not going to happen. That property's not going to transact. You give them their money back. No Form D's owed. Uh, it, it's just not a, a relevant piece of paper anymore to, to being filed. Uh, you still could file it if you want, um, but you know they, you've already given the money back, so you don't have a filing date really until uh, until there's no time to get it back. Now, if you miss that time period, it's very far from the end of the world. Uh, the SEC does not have a penalty. Uh, there's no fee in filing the Form D. There's no penalty associated with the SEC on late files. Occasionally, some of the blue sky states have a late fee filing, uh, but they also don't have. Uh, I don't know of any state that has a, 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 a you know a prohibition of you know you won't get this protection under Form D because or under Reg D because that would be outside of their jurisdiction anyway. Because as a matter uh, the the federal rule wins, uh, Regulation D says well yeah you need to file it within fifteen days. Probably you need to have it filed to be protected by Regulation D in case of a lawsuit. Um, but there's never been an opinion. Uh, there's been one opinion letter that opined that it was possible. Um, but in that one particular opinion letter, it said in this case it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't change the standing that uh, Regulation D still applies, even though the Form D wasn't filed. Uh, so that is the answer to that question. Okay, so we uh, hit the amount of time that we've got allocated for this. So I hope that was helpful. Uh, again, if you're ready to move forward on putting a syndication together, you've you've identified properties or you're, you're ready to get started right away, uh, give us a call and we will get you going. We'll get set up a time to talk. Uh, but otherwise, feel free to, you know, we'll be putting these uh, webinars together fairly regularly, or I'm sure you're getting our email blasts, and I hope you find those useful. Uh, feel free to check in. Uh, as If you're not a client, I'll try to make time to answer, answer the questions. If you are a client, I will definitely find time to answer uh, any questions. So I hope you found that helpful. Uh, thanks, and have a great day.